Tell me why he ain't nothing but a mic check. Tell me why it ain't nothing but a mic check. Tell me why I never got a mic check. Oh, yeah. Here is your mic check. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here on the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. People just call me Whitney, Whitney Seibold. Mm -hmm. Or when you write in, you may call me Rockmeister McCool, Mm. if the urge so strikes you. Yeah, I want to get you like a fake ID that says Rockmeister McCool on it, like in Superbad. (laughs) <laughs> They're like a, a like an actual fake ID, like yeah, the illegal well, kinds. Well, it's not actual if it's fake. I suppose so. <laughs> it's still illegal. It's an actual fake. All right. So it's not a fake. Okay, now we're in it's the movie. Real. Now we're in the movie F for fake, and, uh, and I'm I'm lost and delated all at once. I'm so glad we managed to find the the connection between Superbad and Orson Welles' second to last movie. My name is William Bibiani, <laughs> and this is Whitney, and we read your emails. You email us. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, you can ask us about our various podcasts, uh, or you can just talk to us about stuff in the movie industry. You want to talk about film history, you want to talk about TV, you want to talk about music, you want to talk about your favorite brand of socks. I don't have a lot to say about your favorite brand of socks, but it is your prerogative. You can ask us anything you want, and we will do our best to answer your email in a way that might uh, you might enjoy. Anyway, uh, our first letter comes from B. Peterson. Hello, Hi. B. Peterson. Uh, Dear Cinnamon the Fiendish Dr. Zoltan, what follows uh, this preface is a reframed and abridged Twitter f- thread that I wrote, which I, of which I'm kind of proud and would like to appreciate your thoughts on, uh, though I realize this letter is stupidly long. Oh, it's not that long. We've had no, they never are. Um, I listened to Citizen Dame's latest episode on feminist film criticism, which revolved largely around the topic of the male and female gaze. I loved it, and I'd like to expand upon it a bit, if I may, coming from the perspective of a non-binary. I've long had trouble with the idea of male-slash-female gaze binary. Now, it's not that I acknowledge the exi- I don't acknowledge the existence of either. It's obvious that the male gaze exists, And there are many recent examples of films that I believe successfully eschew it in favor of the female gaze. However, just as a male-slash-female gender dichotomy can be seen as false because people like me exist, I believe the male-slash-female gaze dichotomy can be may may be excluding all possible perspectives. As an interesting Uh, point, I've read this Twitter thread, by the way. I retweeted this Twitter thread. I think there's a lot of interesting ideas in this, and I'm just going to let B. Peterson control the conversation, but... To yeah. start with, I think this is an interesting line of thought. This, this is yeah, this is really fascinating. I, I too read it, uh, yeah. but this is for a benefit of our listeners, yeah. and it also comes in the form of a letter. Uh, so, what would a non-binary, or for the sake of simplicity, queer gaze entail? After looking at media made by openly non-binary creators. I've maybe come up with a few things. The queer gaze might be as such. The intended audience of the film is not specifically either male or female audience. No one is seen as object. Everyone is seen as subjects because male gaze, women's bodies tended to be objectified pretty heavily. Uh, yeah, Whereas even if it's in, subconscious, it's just the yeah. choice of camera angle, the choice of. You'll watch, uh, watch a Michael Bay film. That's well, I think that one's all, overt, all but a lot of that's just well. I mean, if you're looking for an obvious example, here's, of an, here's a the good way example. that kind of. 
bodily objectification Here, is Here's a good really example. Uh, here's a good example. Uh, Read a superhero comic book. Almost every superhero comic book is done what, by, well, especially the ones done by male artists, which mm. is a lot of them, uh, tend to treat the male figures in the, in the superhero costumes, who are also, uh, in most cases, physically idealized, you yeah. know, they're Phys- muscular th- and gorgeous. Th- their power fantasies, right. physical ideals are part of that. But you typically don't see them standing with the same posture or reclining with the same posture or being framed mm. in the scene with their buttocks in the foreground the way you would a female superhero or supervillain. Um, it's just... We like to look at that because it suits our sexuality. Because it's a it's a straight guy making it, and, yeah. and he is thinking that a yeah. straight male audience, like the, the audience, yeah. is like him. Or or they're not thinking mm. at all, and they're just doing it because that's where their that's sexuality like lies. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that is so prevalent that yeah that's mm. it, it becomes a problem mm. and it's only one perspective that we're seeing and when we normalize only one perspective mm. we are diminishing the perspectives of yeah. others uh, whereas the female gaze doesn't operate in quite the same right way there's not a lot of I mean there is centralization of the male body watch American Psycho at mm. some point if you oh, want yeah. to see that oh yeah uh, but I, I, what B. Peterson was saying in their thread was that uh female gaze tends to be a lot more like sees female characters as like fully rounded characters. Whereas male characters while often idealized or sexualized are often seen as, uh, not, not as characters in the same light. Uh-huh. Uh, they're, they're generally not generally speaking. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 They uh, don't get the same emphasis. Anyway. Uh, anyway, uh, the in- the interest, uh, intended audience of a queer gaze film uh, might not be specifically male or female. No one is seen as object. Everyone is seen as subject. So mm-hmm. no one's being objectified. Uh, uh, yeah. People can be portrayed as sexy or desirable, but the intent is to appreciate them, not to consume them as objects. And this is key. People in the film are viewed as individuals represented ver- representing various expressions of the gender spectrum. People will identify as cis male, cis female, trans male, trans female, non-binary or gender fluid. And all of these people, while their identities are respected, will be seen as equally normal. Their identities will influence the work and how the resulting institutional power dynamics as society has erected them interact. And not how the camera views them. Yeah. Now, this sounds a lot like the camera being, quote, objective. But that's... Uh, but that same conversation can be had via the female, R.E., the female gaze. So I think it's, I can safely say that the camera with the queer gaze is also a subjective perspective. And I think that I can say that also because that is how I see things and my perspective would obviously be a subjective one. It's an, it, it's an interesting idea that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that there, there can be a non-objective lens. Uh, it's well, been, it's I, I, think, said, I think the only way a lens is objective is yeah. when nobody's touched it. Yeah. I think once you once you move it and once you decide I'm going to pick this angle, mm. it becomes a subjective lens. Well, but it's also been said that uh, the cam- you know, the filmmaker has a perspective, and we're yeah. seeing the filmmaker's perspective, but we don't see the fem- the filmmaker necessarily, except through maybe some intellectual lens, when we're watching a film. We're seeing our eye, and mm-hmm. we're kind of being turned into voyeurs. Yeah, but and but everything is being objectified. I, I disagree with that on mm-hmm. on the level that we are. We're not given the option to look at anything. Mm. We're only given the option to look at what the camera shows us in a movie. Now, granted, there are a few exceptions to that. Movies with multiple angle features, typically mm. experimental films. But all of those angles are still chosen. Even so, yeah. all of those angles are still chosen. Exactly my point. It's one of those things that, like, when people talked about how, oh, are video games really a storytelling art form if you can make all these different decisions mm. in them? 
Yes, all of those decisions are predetermined by the people who made the game. You can only make those decisions if they feel it suits well, within, the narrative that the, they're telling. The parameters of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I personally don't believe in objective camera. I believe that you can attempt an objective aesthetic, mm. but even that is a choice. And I think even when you try to intellectualize your cinema and your imagery, mm. that in and of itself is a subjective take because you're saying that the more overtly subjective take, the more emotional take, the more lascivious take, mm. the more visceral take, the more violent, whatever you want to do, you're saying that that is irrelevant right now. What I'm interested in is the intellectual take. So I think no. it's always subjective. Right. Um, anyway, to continue, yes. uh, they continue, to apply to the, this two examples, I'll list three pieces of film slash television, which per, uh, portrays a lesbian relationship, each in a very different way. Yeah. Uh, first is Blue is the Warmest Color, Male gaze. Very much so. Uh, made by a male filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abdelatif Kashish? Ab- Abdelatif Kashish. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Female mm-hmm. gaze. Celine Chiama. Yeah. Uh, feel Good, the queer gaze. I haven't seen Feel I Good. I haven't. Uh, Netflix's yeah. Feel Good is the first thing I've seen that made me feel seen as a non-binary and the way that a uh, show sees gender as this weird, almost awkward thing. Mm. A large part of this is thanks to the creator and star Mae Martin, who is non-binary, and gives an incredibly cathartic speech at one point about how they just do not fit in as man or woman mm. uh, and feel like a failure at being either. I must reiterate that this is... Uh, None of this is a hard film theory. It's just speculation. Uh, that said, I really don't think this is something uh, that this is something worth exploration on a larger scale. I'd love to see discussions on the topic of a queer gaze, papers written about it, and more importantly, I want to see films with a queer gaze. So I put it to you, do you think the queer gaze potentially exists? If so, what does it look like? What examples of queer gaze have you seen at any? Is Citizen Dame one of the best podcasts? It is. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you. I'll see you in the next one, B. Peterson. Uh, to answer well, your thank last... Thank you for letter, B. Uh, B. Peterson. Thank you very, very much. To answer uh, the last question first, yeah, Citizen Dame is actually a great podcast. Um, <laughs> I highly recommend that podcast. I uh, think it's well. I I think if you enjoy our podcast in the way that we are trying to discuss, not just whether a film is entertaining or not, but actually try to go deeper into mm-hmm. it and discuss uh, larger context, critical context, historical context, uh, then you should definitely listen to Citizen Dames. It's excellent. Um, regarding uh, the queer gays, that I there's a reason I retweeted that one. I think it's very eloquently stated, and uh, two because. We have been discussing in the critical community the issue of the male gaze versus the female gaze. So often it's practically a drinking game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it's a relevant conversation to have, Mm. but at the same time, it's just been a dominant part of the conversation. And what we have perhaps been overlooking is that there are way more perspectives than that. And... As the industry opens up and as we start seeing more perspectives actually having an opportunity to make Mm. movies and have those movies seen by a larger audience, we're going to encounter uh, a filmmaking that goes beyond those particular parameters Mm. through which we tend to see things. And look, let's just be fair. If you're only looking at films as male gaze versus female gaze, that's a binary perspective. A non-binary perspective is overdue mm. i think so i think yeah. this is a really fascinating topic of conversation yeah the th- this is something and this is goes to a larger theory about film in general that filmmakers uh make films uh with themselves in mind as the audience mm. uh some some filmmakers do try to think of like a, a theater of a certain type of audience yeah william castle is one of those 
It's like, okay, he's making a movie, but he's thinking of, like, a Saturday matinee um, mm-hmm. full of, like, 10-year-old boys just yeah. having a wonderful time. He, he's, they're making a movie um, for a specific demographic. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but even, like, the most stalwart auteurs are going to be making films with themselves in mind because that's what they're kind of doing. They're getting art out of themselves There's an interesting uh, rather than putting it somewhere else. There's an interesting, uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Anecdote. Hmm. Uh, I heard from, I think it was Steven Spielberg, and I think he was talking about Vilmos Sigmund, but he was talking about one of the early cinematographers he worked with. Mm. And he was talking about how when he was young, he was making movies, and yeah, he may have had some talent, but he had a lot to learn. And um, when his director of photography asked him while they were prepping the film, doing storyboards, Mm. deciding how it was going to look, cinematographer said, "Uh, who's telling the story? Mm. And Spielberg Foolishly. I'm telling the story. Yeah, he said, I'm telling the story. And he's like, that's not what I meant. (laughs) I mean, who, which character is the perspective of the story? Because Mm. that dictates what we see, what we don't see, whose Mm. emotional arc that we're emphasizing on when this person is introduced. Do we frame that person heroically because this person would view them heroically or villainously because this person would view them villainously? How we decide to tell a story and through whose perspective, both fictional and just behind the camera, mm. matters. So it's a conversation that is valid. It's also a conversation that can be difficult to have because at some point we do start asking ourselves, okay, well, what did the director really mean? We don't necessarily know. And even and if the director tells know, us, yeah. yeah, even if the director, director might not know, and even if they tell us, they could be wrong. They, they could, could be, be lying. They, they, could, they could be communicating something they didn't intend. Yeah, uh, it, it, it could well, be. This is. Yeah. I mean, this is why, and this is why everybody gets up in arms over the fact that men are persistently nominated for best director at, at yeah. prestigious award ceremonies. It's like okay, f- five more perspectives from five more men, usually white guys. Yeah, uh, and. That's a limited perspective. The the white male perspective, although it has been the dominant one, and we tend to think of cinema as coming from their perspective because they've been ruling it for a century. Yeah. uh, Doesn't mean that's the only perspective we can get. And this is why we need more more films from from women, from lesbians. I would love to see... a non- non-binary category or a non-binary director, several non-binary directors yeah. make films in a year to see yeah. what the perspective and, is because and those, for those are films to get seen hear, because yeah. people those films might uh, actually be getting made, but they're not necessarily being mm-hmm. distributed or they're not necessarily being uh, widely recognized mm-hmm. as such, and that's a that's a very serious problem. My first day of film school, I remember we uh, we had just a general introduction to film class just to make sure everyone knew the basics was on the same page because mm-hmm. not everyone entering the school had the same background. So we need to make sure we understand, okay, here's what different lenses mean, here's the Mm -hmm. gist of film history. It was an overview class. But the very first thing we did in the class was we the the professor went up to the front and they went Mm -hmm. to the blackboard. I think it was a blackboard, I don't think it was dry erase. Anyway, uh, they said, okay, I want you everyone to list the greatest filmmakers of all time. Like when Mm -hmm. you think of the greatest filmmakers of all time, who do you think of? And we all went around, and we all, and whether we intentionally or not, we all named someone. And by the end, the blackboard was full of people, and it was full of men, mm-hmm. and there was only like two people of color on it. Yeah, it was. I think it was Spike Lee and Akira Kurosawa. I think that was it because mm-hmm. people, you know, hadn't introduced some of the others. But regardless, that has completely dominated the conversation. That's completely dominated the industry, mm-hmm. and to many, it seems like a default, like the, the default setting of cinema. 
And that's a problem. Um, well, it, it's it's a problem, but it's also, in, in many ways, all we have. Because women yeah. were so marginalized, and because filmmakers of color couldn't even make films, it was illegal at certain points in America, mm-hmm. uh, then the only one we're left with is the white male perspective. Yeah. And they're the ones who are building cinema. And when uh, we think of... Hold on. Early on, uh, uh, directing was far more often uh, done um, by women in the silent era. That was way more common in the silent era. Oh, for but sure. There were a lot of, be cra- a lot of fair. F- female directors in the silent era. Yeah. Um, one of the United Artists was Mary Pickford, for God's sake, one yeah. of the greatest actresses of all time, as well as one of the most innovative uh, film pioneers. There were some very but, prolific, uh, uh, creative, and hmm. important... Silent filmmakers who were women, it was not seen as a men-only job until a little later. But once that was the case, that was the case. That was the case. And that, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, when which happened a lot. Horror men, used to be seen as a genre for women. About, yeah. And then once horror started getting popular, women started getting pushed out and they started mm. becoming only men should be interested in this. Women shouldn't be talking about horror. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> But I digress. So that, the big problem with studying film history and a uh, rather uh, common and correct uh, complaint about it mm-hmm. is that because of systemic misogyny mm-hmm. and racism in the system... Mm-hmm. And, left, and homophobia and, hom- and all yeah, kinds all, of all, other horrible... Anybody who wasn't a... a, a straight white a straight, dude. Straight white head dude. Uh, yeah, and, um, and, and for, for many years, uh, uh, Christian was also an important uh, yeah, part as well, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, they weren't. At least they weren't all Americans. Right? Like Italians, like Capra, and yeah. and uh, Austrians, like Billy Wilder. Uh, but so yeah, when when we as film enthusiasts start to delve into film history, we're finding this big ch- treasure chest full of white dudes. <laughs> it's a hell of an and, and you kind of have to dig through all those white dudes to find the women and the, yeah. and the non-white filmmakers in there. And they're out uh, there, but de- you have to dig. They're definitely in there, but you have to dig. And because they have dominated the discourse for so long, it's kind of all we have left. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why, in the modern era, it's so important to not have that perspective anymore. Yeah. Uh, and B. Peterson brings up an excellent point. I would love, love to see a, a film that is from the eye of uh, of what they called the queer gaze, but we can call it the non-binary gaze. Should, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. I feel like, I feel like, because the one thing I have, the one mm. thought I have about this conversation, about this particular idea of the queer gaze, mm. is that there isn't a lot of discussion, and the thing is, when you bring up a new idea in critical thought, or an idea that hasn't been explored enough in critical thought, mm. um, it might not be the final version, the first draft of it, so there might need to be some conversation about what qualifies here. Mm. Um, there is in you know there is sexuality yeah. in in the 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 queer gaze, I think, um, and I'm not hearing a lot of that. A lot of the talk of the male gaze is sexual in some respects. Some of the talk of the female gaze is sexual, and certainly it can be. Mm. But when you are yeah, the does how does the queer gaze handle eroticism? Yeah, like, on I, on a casual yeah. or or forthright basis, mm. yeah. that would be something that I would think would be a part of the discussion. I would like to see continued mm. uh, beyond what we currently have in B. Peterson's very excellent email. Yeah. Um, so that's a thought. Um, uh, regards to what I've seen, not nearly enough. Um, there are a lot of people who have made a really uh, specific focus 
of talking about queer cinema. Uh, in particular, we're good friends with Alonzo Duralde over at Linoleum Knife, who's literally written books on the subject. Um, I'd be curious what he thought. <laughs> he, he, he ran out fast, for God's sake. Yeah, huh? he, he's, he's keyed into uh, that world of cinema, and he'd have a much better idea of what films are already out there. Yeah, than the, even the Whitney or I, and we try, but he's really been dedicated to it, and he's been doing it for decades. So yeah. he's lapped us a hundred times over. So I, for yeah, me, look, my look thought up, would be Alonso. to ask Alonzo to roll Alonso. Yeah, um, <laughs> in, in all things, ask Alonzo. <laughs> pretty much, I look up to him. I think he's he's a really intelligent, mm. and excellent critic, and um, uh, yeah. So that would be my my mm. one thought in that regard. Right. Also, if you really want to learn more about sort of the early early era of Hollywood and how many of the ideas we have about the early era of Hollywood have been turned into urban legend or just lies hmm. uh, I highly recommend following an account on Twitter called Movies oh, Silently movie si- yeah she is wonderful Movies Silently is even if you're not into silent film you will learn so much by just reading her tweets on your thre- on your Twitter account hmm. every day just interesting ways that silent cinema parallels today uh you know things that we think of as norms in the industry that didn't used to be forgotten films it's it's a really really great account i've learned a lot from there, her yeah. so i highly recommend uh, and, uh, li- uh following her if you don't already yeah, and, and if you're also looking for a little bit more uh regular contributions about sort of the early days of, of silent cinema mm-hmm. uh also follow bfi uh bfi yeah. is way better at this than any american film site yeah american film sites film start like there's one film in 1977 uh there was a sequel in 1980 and then films kind of started in earnest in 1984 and that's kind of where we are with a lot of modern film discourse uh but Uh, yeah also make sure you follow uh citizen dame pod on twitter and just subscribe to their uh podcast Mm -hmm. if you like our movie podcasts i'm almost 100 percent confident you'll like theirs and (laughs) maybe even like there's so much you don't listen to us anymore and i'm fine with that (laughs) Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Here's a letter Mm. from Will. Hello, Will. Hi. Oh, is it me? Uh, No. This is W-I-L. Oh. Have you ever gone as Will? No. Have you ever gone as Bill or Billy or or Billiam? No. You're just William. Yeah. Bill was my dad. Most people called my dad Bib. So I was Bibz, plural. Uh, But uh, for... In fact, everyone called my dad Bill or Bibs so much Mm. that when I was born and I was named after another relative... It wasn't until I was about two years old, so I'm told. I don't remember this myself, but my parents tell the story. I was about two years old. They were on a walk with mm. me through the neighborhood, and they ran into someone they hadn't seen in many years. And they said, oh, and this is our uh, youngest son. And uh, they would say, oh, Bill Jr. And my parents told each other, like, oh, shit. That's your name, isn't oh, it? Oh, God. <laughs> How did we do this? <laughs> Whoops. They didn't even realize that they, you had the same name as your father. Which sounds ridiculous, but I assure you, if you knew my parents, you would believe that story. <laughs> That's totally the kind of shit they would do. They're hilarious. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Well, Will. Th- this is not from William. This okay. is from Will. Uh, okay. Hello, Will. And he, said, he begins, hello, scoundrel and varlet. Ooh. We, we declared recently how we wanted to be insulted in, uh, in anachronistic insults. Yeah. I was hoping for scamp, but I'll take scoundrel. Scoundrel and varlet. Well, I think, I think the you one said scoundrel. I said scoundrel. Uh, I think you requested varlet. varlet so thank yeah. you very, very much um, for taking our request. I wanted, to, I wanted to say thank you for uh, your insights and criticism that you've provided throughout all your podcasts. Recently, I realized that your recommendations have really been informing my movie habits for the last several years. Oh, wow. From inspiring me to have a double feature of Underwater and Sea Fever. Good for you. Nice. Uh, to introduce me, introducing me to the ballad 
ballad of Buster Scruggs, the best film released that year, and Ooh. I would have missed it if it weren't for you guys. I dig that movie. I liked it a it lot. It was really good. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I think I got a little overlooked. Yeah. Mm. That's a Coen Brothers film, too. I know, but it went to Netflix, and a lot it's of people just... It's Western. It's a weird It was idea. a weird yeah, thing, yeah. but yeah, I should have gotten more attention. It's excellent. Yeah. Um, I truly can't thank you for the gift of your recommendations and criticisms enough. Well, thank you. That's thank you. That's you. why we do it, so uh, thank you. My question hmm. concerns a movie that I haven't been able to shake for, from my mind from having seen it once years ago. A friend let me borrow Charlie Kaufman's directorial debut film, Synecdoche, New York, ah. stating that it is a favorite movie of all time and that it is this he watches when he's feeling low or sad. Needless to say, if you have seen the movie, it won't come as a shock that it made me feel low and sad. Mm. And I promptly had to watch cartoons to feel some sort of joy in life again. <laughs> it is a downer, that movie. Yeah, I've been there. Um, uh, I'm going I'm to say this right now. Mm. I haven't seen it. And oh. one of the reasons why hmm. is because everyone told me it would make me feel sad. And I have enough problems with depression as it is. Okay. So if I don't have to see it, I don't necessarily seek it out for funsies. Don't, don't you think that having like movie sadness kind of sharpens your weapons against real sadness? No, it just makes mm. me sad. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm very empathetic in general. I just, mm. I, if someone else is sad, I get sad. Oh, okay. So um, I sometimes for like when I'm just watching movies that I don't have to watch for work, veer away from depressing films so uh, I haven't right. gotten around to it yet but I do hear it's there amazing uh, I don't think the movie is bad not at all in fact I find that it may be one of the better films about theater that's ever been made having been a theater professional in the Midwest for several years may have contributed to hitting so close to home for me but this movie is nothing short of an existential horror film I would watch it again but at two hours and four minutes not one second of that film I can say is fun I don't mind challenging films but that one put me through my paces what are your takes on this Rubik's Cube of a film and bonus questions what are your favorite films that were adapted from stage play Place, not including Shakespeare or musicals. Oh. Uh, I'm quite partial to the film adaptation of Noises Off. Oh, I would have listed that one. That's a good one. Uh, which uh, make just a humdinger of a double feature with Synecdoche in New York if the tonal whiplash didn't break you first. Uh, thank you for all you do, Will. Um, I did see Synecdoche in New York. I, I saw yeah. it when it came out. It was a, I yield it was a big, the floor. It was a big... Uh, awards push at the time which is really weird because it's an odd odd duck of a film but mm -hmm. it's, that's that's but it had a big cast and a big he, cast. he'd won Charlie, an academy yeah, award already Charlie Kaufman yeah. like the world was like, like being John Malkovich came out in 99 right at the time when that kind of weirdness could have a lot of mainstream appeal oh yeah being John uh, Malkovich was nominated for a couple of academy awards yeah, that's an odd film uh, like, oh very much so like it, it, you ever read the original draft uh, original script no. It was way more expensive. It ended in the apocalypse and like John oh, Malkovich like floating over the world as their new god. And <laughs> it's great. And most of the movie is in there, but you can just see how like Spike mm. Jones was just like, no, that's stupid. We can't mm. afford that. Mm. And just got pared down to the smaller film we see. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to read that draft, it's really, really funny. Mm. But the version we have, mm. I think, is the better film. But uh, Charlie, yeah, Charlie Kaufman made a film essentially that tried to encapsulate an entire life. It is about a playwright played by Philip Seymour Hoffman who is experiencing life kind of like you would in, in a James Joyce novel. Like, mm. everything he thinks is also partially real. So uh, there's a scene where, um, I think it's Emily Watson, is moving into a house, and the house is on fire. And just like in that meme you see online, she mm. just says, oh, this is fine. It's like, the, there's a the, the house is burning down, but, you know, you won't be hurt for a long time. Okay, I'll move in. And there's all these weird sort of metaphors for the way life operates. Um, yeah, people have tattoos and the tattoos sort of shed off of their bodies and uh, eventually it becomes about uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman's character ambition to create 
like recreate his entire life on stage down to the minutest detail. And he ends up building this enormous warehouse where he's essentially recreated the entire city. Right. And there's people living in it 24 hours a day. And he's just sort of wandering through watching people recreate his life. And it's this big meditation on the function of art and what art actually does and how it really is a reflection of the artist and how when you're a neurotic person who's constantly worried about health and death, mm-hmm. all of your art is going to be ruminations on fear and pain and sadness and death. Yeah. And uh, and it's weirdly exhilarating. It makes no sense. It's really slowly paced. A lot of people really hated it. I saw it with my wife. She really hated it. <laughs> uh, and I was like sort of chewing. It's like, yeah, wow, what a really fascinating sort of thing. There's a lot going on there. I need to think about that a little more. It's like, no, nah, it's a piece of crap. <laughs> Don't. Don't be distracted by its pretension, you are you critic. Oh, fine. Uh, I remember uh, when it came out. Uh, Roger Ebert was really quick to call it the best film of the decade. I remember that he was very gung ho. Yeah, he was really, really gung ho about Synecdoche, New York, and I think. It's, uh, to go back to B. Peterson's uh, letter about sort of perspective in film, it's not about sort of. The, the gaze or gender necessarily, but it is about how a certain type of filmmaker is going to tell a certain type of story. And Charlie Kaufman was really kind of preoccupied with his, uh, his midlife crisis, more mm-hmm. or less, his, his facing mortality. And so he made this huge, gigantic explosion uh, for the over-the-hill man. Mm. The, the middle-aged middle-aged guy and not just the middle-aged guy middle-aged people in general or people who are at the very least very keenly observant of their own mortality yeah uh, i think it's really really fascinating yeah it's tough is it fun i think it's kind of impish in a way i think mm. it's really playful charlie kaufman's films are you know do come across as kind of downbeat but i think he is taking the piss in a lot of ways. You watch films like Being John Malkovich or Adaptation. You can see him not necessarily mocking, but at least finding little bits of pathetic humor in his pathetic characters. Yeah. Uh, It's one of those films that really does... I hate to say this about movies, because (laughs) this is like, no, man, you just need to watch it again. I hate that. It's like you just missed it the first time. Watch yeah. it again, but I already hated it. Why do I need to watch it a second well, time? Well, I think I think there's something interesting. I had a conversation, and I want to get back to the email in a minute. But uh, well, there's yeah. sorry. Well, no, no, you go ahead. All right. Well, I, I want just, to talk about that point. I just yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, it, it is a film, however, that mm. perhaps warrants a little bit of thought, and then a few years down the line, see it again and kind yeah. of redigest it, and then maybe when you're older, still you can redigest it again, and you'll find it kind of. In like fusing with your DNA after a yeah. while. Uh, there's a there's a uh, clip uh, going around from uh, one of the documentaries about the making of the Mandalorian, in which okay. uh, Dave Filoni, who is uh, one of the uh, big, you know, artistic uh, directors of the TV side uh-huh. of Star Wars, he's behind the Clone Wars animated series. Uh, he's very well respected in the Star Wars community. Um, he ex- it's just the clip is just him explaining. Why the duel of the fates, seeing the big sword fight from the end of oh. uh, Star Wars Phantom Menace, why it's actually more dramatic than it gets credit for. And a lot of people are passing this around like, wow, yeah, that was good. And I'm like, oh, wait, I think I saw some of this. Yeah, and I, it it's interesting. Out he was a brother to Anakin. And well, all that it's interesting stuff. because what he's really just doing is explaining the plot. 
Yeah, yeah he's not true. he's not giving you a new perspective based off of uh, things that you could have missed because you were coming at it from a different angle. Maybe you missed it from an economic perspective, mm. or a feminist perspective, or a queer perspective, or or any sort of perspective that you might have missed. Mm. Generally, what he's just doing is explaining the plot of the movie in a more concise and effective way over the course of about a minute and a half than the Phantom Menace did. When Dave Filoni is like describing that movie, he's describing a better movie. <laughs> Lots of really bad movies have good stories. Yeah, yeah, you can have a good story and tell it really badly. Case in point, Gus Van Zandt's Psycho. Where he's literally got the same story as the, the original classic that, film. The point of that experiment. I agree. Yeah. It's literally the same story as the original film, but this one doesn't work for a variety of reasons, and I'm not going to bother getting into that right now, but my point is this. Just because the idea that Anakin Skywalker was robbed of a more sensitive uh, uh, upbringing under Qui-Gon Jinn mm -hmm. and was instead raised by Obi-Wan Kenobi, who didn't have as much of a connection to the kid... Just because that's there doesn't mean it's told well. No, in fact, it's told incredibly poorly. I we're would not, argue that as well. And the fact that people are having their the... minds blown by having the basic plot of the movie described to them kind of speaks ill of the original film, because a film is more than its plot. Because the film didn't communicate that, that yeah. it took 20 years of perspective of watching and re-watching this goddamn movie. To get the plot. To get just the like the basics of the plot. Yeah. Dave yeah, Filoni is right. That bare bones plot failed. is good. That bare bones mm -hmm. plot is interesting. It's not in the film very well. No, and there's so, so much else going on in those movies so that I think, it's, it's just lost in this miasma of junk. So I think there's a difference between saying, I think you should rewatch this film from mm -hmm. a very different perspective. Like, yeah. um, um, and I don't mean to my own horn here, but I think I'm doing that when I say that when you watch Jupiter Ascending, try not to watch it as a macho action movie. Try to watch it as a uh, sort of riff on the Disney princess myth. A, the riff on the Disney mm. princess myth. B, uh, uh, a capitalist uh, horror story. Uh, and C, it's kind of omnisexual as well. So uh, that's something that I think would warrant reviewing from a new perspective. I'm not saying you didn't understand the plot. Mm. If you understood the plot and you don't like it, that's fine. No, but <laughs> So sometimes your first perspective is mm. fine. Yeah, and... and I, I only brought it up because I encounter yeah. that a lot. When I yeah. dislike a film, people say, no, man, you just didn't get it. You need to watch it again. And, yeah. and I, I get that I've a lot this... for Sucker Punch. Or, or Actually, every Zack <laughs> Snyder movie. People tend to... <laughs> no, you just don't get Zack Snyder. Don't, you just don't no. get Sucker Punch. You understand, man. That was like a metaphor. I'm like, I get it. It's just not well done. This is what we call the MacArthur Park defense. <laughs> It's like, someone left the cake out in the rain, and I don't think I can take it, because it took so long to bake it, and I'll never have that recipe again. Don't you understand, man? The cake is a metaphor. Yes. But the cake is a very stupid metaphor. Yeah, your mind rejects that <laughs> metaphor, because it sounds ridiculous. When you tell so people about that song, it, you never heard about that yeah. song, they do not believe it's real. <laughs> MacArthur Park is a real song. Yeah, I know. I thought it was a joke on The Simpsons. I know. It's hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, a lot of things that people think are a joke on The Simpsons, but are actually Turned real. We real. had that and with Mac Paint Your Wagon recently. Yeah, MacArthur Park was the one for me. Anyway, to get back to the email, the other part of the, the email, which I think is a really great question, is what are the other great movies based on plays that aren't Shakespeare? Oh, there you go. Yeah. First off, Whitney and I love a lot of Shakespeare. Mm. We really, really do. In fact, we were actually debating po possibly doing a Shakespeare project not that long ago, <laughs> and maybe we'll do it, maybe we won't. But uh, God knows we need more projects, right? Mm. Uh, but uh, there are a lot 
of great cinema, uh, great movies that are based off of plays. Mm. Uh, perhaps fewer now lately, but especially in like the first half of the of the sound era in particular. Although there were a lot of silent adaptations of plays. Uh, People were mining plays left and right, buying yeah, up plays yeah. left and right because they're already there. We need we need sound. We need people to talk. We need good dialogue. And you already wrote one, so let's just do that. <laughs> uh, so there's a ton. Um, some of my favorites, uh, and it's again, it's a broad spectrum because there's all different kinds of plays. Uh, Amadeus is one of my favorite movies yeah, that's based of all on time. Play, yeah. uh, absolutely. Um, uh, what am I trying to think here? The Philadelphia Story has some of the best dialogue you'll see in any movie ever. Mm-hmm. Just. F- Sparkling and witty and brilliant characters saying oh. brilliant and romantic things to each other. It's, it's kind of obvious, but Cat on Hudson Roof. Uh, yeah, I've never is, seen that. Is one of those. Um, in, in recent years, there have been a few that have been like praised at the time, but kind of forgotten or were mm. a little off to the side. Uh, William Friedkin's last two films were based on Tracy Letts plays. Oh yeah, uh, uh, Killer uh, Joe and Bug. Yeah, uh, those are both just bleak and intense and like like really really good. But wow, they're tough to take. Was August Osage County a Tracy Letts play? Oh, I think it was. Yeah, that. I think that's, it was. That's fucking Blake. Yeah. Um, um, let's see. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, some of the more famous ones: The Odd Couples, based on a play. If you've never oh, seen the original yeah. film, it still slaps. Like it's really <laughs> good. Um, there have been many different plays of like uh, Ibsen's A Dollhouse. Technically, mm-hmm. Dracula. Yes, uh, true. 1931 Dracula yeah. is based on the play of Dracula. Uh, um, what do we got? Um, oh, uh, the one Arsenic was, and Old Lace was a hit was, play. It's hilarious. Was that, that was like a recent hit, but people don't talk about it, even though it's really, really good, was Fences. Oh, yeah. That's uh, a good yeah. one. They, that that kind of got like, after award season died down, people stopped talking about it so much, yeah. but that's a very good film. Uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, if you haven't seen it, Cary <laughs> Grant is a young man. He's getting married. It's, it's Halloween, and mm. he goes to tell his two aunts who live in a graveyard, and he just thinks that they're eccentric old kooks, and then he finds out that they're actually serial killers who've been killing people his entire life and it gets weirder from there Mm. it's odd but it's really really (laughs) really really funny uh alfred hitchcock's rope is based on a play it's one of the reasons why he shot it in one shot because it was kind of framed Um, to be one shot we can talk about David Mamet, uh, Glenn Gary oh, yeah. Ross, and uh, Oleana are both based on his plays. I think mm-hmm. uh, I think I prefer the movies that he's done that are actually based off of like original screenplays, like like Spanish Prisoner. And, so, uh, nah, being about Spanish Prisoner, I was thinking of uh, Homicide or Heist or, or House, House of Games. Games. House of Games, House of Games is, awesome, is arguably yeah. his best work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think what else. Um, so oh, a few of, good men is based on a play. People forget that. Oh, that's uh, Aaron Sorkin, right? Yeah, Aaron Sorkin mm-hmm. wrote a really great play. It was a courtroom thriller, mm-hmm. and it turned into a movie. And it doesn't feel like it's based on a play. Like it never feels like confined. Mm-hmm. They just Rob Reiner just brought that thing out. It's such a great yeah. film. Oh, we're, we're, and we're also trying to stay away from musicals, so I can't. Mention yeah, that. I think um, that's a bit of an obvious one. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's one we're going to be talking about soon on our Oscars podcast on the Patreon. You can't take it with you. Oh, yeah. uh, one of the mm-hmm. one of the more delightful farces about mm-hmm. uh, you know class warfare or or the failures thereof, but mm-hmm. it's really really good. I think uh, Twelve Angry Men was based on a play. Yeah, Twelve Angry Men, uh, was based 12 on Angry Men is one of the great American films mm-hmm. by my measure. Uh, here's a more recent one that I think got overlooked: the remake of About Last Night. With uh, oh, was, um, was that a play? Yeah, it was. Oh, I okay. think it was David Mamet play actually. Um, but uh, yeah, about last night they did a remake. Uh, there was a version of it in the '80s, and they did a loose remake of it recently with, um, let's see, it was Michael Ely and um, oh, why was, am I spacing on his name? Tika Sumter. Was it Tika Sumter in that? Uh, well, Kevin Hart was Kevin like, Hart the, was the other male lead. I think that's actually Kevin Hart's best role because he's actually got like good dialogue. 
Right. Like sometimes he's just I, I didn't, expected. I didn't to, see it, but I, I know it was Michael Ely, and I know it was Kevin Hart. And it's I got, think it was it's Tika got Sumter. To, uh, hold on, it was uh, no, it was Regina Hall and Joy Bryant. Oh, okay. Those yeah, were yeah. the big four. It's basically a Joe four-hander. Bryant, okay. And yeah, the, there's an original David Mamet play. It was turned into... Uh, uh, the play was called Sexual Perversity in Chicago. It was remade into a movie uh, called About Last Night. And then it was remade again in 2014. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the original like movie in a really, really long time. But I remember thinking that when the remake came out in 2014, it was the better version. Mm. It just felt more alive. The acting was just really, really great. It doesn't feel like very detached. It's very human. Um, I like that one a lot. Okay. Actually, I think that gets a, that's a little underrated. Um, so um, yeah, yeah I, and there's I'm, plenty more besides. A Bronx Tale is great. Um, uh, there's a. I really wish, and I know this is just not the hip thing right now. Yeah. That we not just more Shakespeare adaptations because I think we could use like eight a year, frankly. Why but, not? Um, yeah, just keep doing them. If, if you're going to have three Marvel films, why not three giant A productions of Shakespeare? Well, we did that uh, throughout the nineties. Yeah, the nineties. It was a good, good time. It was in the nineties. Every year we had at least like two top flight adaptations of Shakespeare and Jane Austen. It was great. <laughs> Bring it back. <laughs> it was so I'm cool. All for it. Oh my uh, god! But just the, the idea that people aren't interested in adapting the ancients anymore. Like, mm. when was the last time we had a Ring of the Nibelungen film? Like, the, uh, there the, actually the, was one mm. uh, that was like a TV movie production uh, shortly after Lord of the Rings came out. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It, it was relatively small scale, but it, they did it. Yeah, like, it's a I, thing. I would know? love to see that. I'd love to. I haven't seen like just a full bore, one hundred percent. Big A budget adaptation of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. Let's just do that. Yeah, <laughs> why well, not? Well, I think because I, I think it's Beowulf bombed. That's probably Beowulf. Well, what? Yeah. That was a long time ago. But you know how First Hollywood all, is. They well, learn yeah, a lesson they never unlearn. Ro- Robert Zemeckis Beowulf. A wasn't a faithful adaptation. B it was a technical exercise more than it was like a telling of the Beowulf story. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was uh, darker than people thought it would be. Mm. A lot of people thought it was going to be because it's animated. Thought it would be for kids because mm. that's what Americans think. Um, mm. <laughs> There's a bit where uh, Beowulf is flashing back to the time he killed a sea serpent. And yeah. The whole sequence is he, like, burrows into its head and bursts yeah. out through its eye. It has and, nothing to do with anything. As, it's as an empty it's, spectacle. As it's dying, he's standing on its head and he screams, Beowulf! <laughs> I watched the riff tracks for that moment. <laughs> And Mike Nelson, his thing is like, okay, if I ever burrow out through the eye of a sea creature, I'm going to think of something better to say than just, Mike! <laughs> One of my favorite versions of that is in the first Michael Bay Transformers movie, uh-huh. where uh, the whole plot is that Megatron, you know, the evil leader of the Decepticons, <laughs> he crash-landed on Earth, like, mm. centuries ago, and, like, froze in the Antarctic, and he's been there ever since. Mm. And uh, we find out in the over the course of the movie that the government found this giant robot in the ice, and they've been, like, reverse-engineering to Technology from him, you know, a little bit like Men in Black, and but he's they've never unfrozen him. When they finally break him out, Starscream, the most underappreciated character in all of pop culture, Starscream. But he's plenty appreciated. Okay, I think he's unappreciated <laughs> by, in those by, movies by by people our age. He's plenty appreciated. I appreciate Starscream. Right. Anyway, Starscream releases Megatron, finds him, and releases him. Megatron, I think, says two things when he gets out. One is, I am Megatron! Mm. The second thing he says is, You have failed me again, Starscream! Dude! <laughs> what do you mean? I just resurrected I you. I just did century. the thing! What, the, what do you... What, no wonder I'm trying to betray you, you dick. Mm. <laughs> anyway, there's a lot of great movies based on plays. They do not get enough talk uh, uh, lately. 
because mm. there are fewer of them, and lately we're basing a lot of our high-profile projects on stuff like TV and yeah. video games and, and comics. Books, and yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, but we maybe we've lost sight of what's going on in the theater community, and I'd like to see more of yeah. it. Well, and also a lot of these comic books... First of all, you Thor is in these comic book movies. Yeah. Classical Let, Let's just have a big epic film of Njal's saga. <laughs> I'd love that. That'd be cool. Yeah, I've, I've do just it. A, a lot of ancient literature and ancient theater. Uh, the ancient Greeks would be great. Wouldn't you love to see a bunch of Oresteia movies? I would love to see... I, I think it's the obvious thing. Mm. Just do a big budget odyssey. Yeah, Just, yeah, they I, did a TV movie in like the nineties. Yeah, with Armando Sante, like it was a Konchalovsky joint. Didn't didn't Sean Bean play Odysseus in uh, Troy? Oh, I forgot. I think he did, but like I remember seeing Troy, and Troy is not great. Troy is quite bad. Actually. And there's good stuff in Troy. Like I like pretty much anything with Eric Bana in that movie. He, that was a big breakout role for him. And, and Diane Kruger is perfect casting as Helen. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Brad Pitt's actually pretty good. There's a couple of good bits in there, but. For me, when I saw it, I'm like, okay, this is nice and all, but if this is just a prequel to the Odyssey, that's all I want. I want the Odyssey with to like, look like this. To look yeah. th- this scale of the Odyssey, bring in the magic, by the way. Mm. Don't ignore that. That was a huge mistake that movie made. The gods aren't in Troy. It's I the know. Iliad. The gods play an active role in the story yeah, of the, the Iliad. The gods are literally walking around, man. <laughs> like, it was weird that you did that, especially when you didn't like change it so that it would actually be more plausible. Like, we're just going to leave a big fuck off horse as per usual. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's an Eddie Izzard bit. But, um, yeah, I would love to see more Greek myths. But anyway, we should move on for more letters. Yeah. Uh, here is a letter from <laughs> Dane Cheesley. Hello, Dane Cheesley. Hi. Uh, dear Count Bibula and Whitney Slybold. Nice. This is the part that made me chuckle. Before I ask my question, I just want to say that I recently decided to fork out my hard-earned coins and join your Patreon. God bless. Thank you. Uh, Thank you two fill a much-needed void when my uh, two favorite Australian movie reviewers, David Stratton and Margaret... Pomeranz retired from their movie review TV show in 2014. Oh, that's too bad. Um, I find in recent years missing the video store experience as a way of finding new movies. Sir, we all do. Yep. Uh, When I was young, I used to love going to Major Video with my mom and venturing into the dark corner to eyeball the amazing horror movie VHS covers. Mm. Many of my movies I love today were selected off the shelf based on their awesome cover art, such as the Brain Dead VHS. Uh, That was a cool one. Uh, with the ra- raised monkey coming out of the person's mouth. Oh yeah, uh, and it, it's the uh, like a, a close up of a woman's like face, pulling, like her, pulling mouth her mouth open. And there's a little skull inside her mouth. Yeah, um, the maniac cover with the image of a man's jeans and a hand holding a scalp. Yeah, Child's Play Two with Chucky about to cut off a frightened Jack in the Box's head that, with a pair of scissors. That trailer scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Sorry, Jack. Chucky's back. (laughs) God. I I love the movies now, but I didn't see them in their entirety until I was in my 20s just because... They're too scary. The the clips that I had seen and like even watching the clip they showed on E. Siskel and Ebert scared the crap out of me. I I found it really odd that these days, you know, you ask guys our age, it's usually guys, uh, talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. About this sort of like, oh, this is badass, and it's more like an action movie. It's like yeah. when it's I was kind a, of a superhero movie, really. Uh, it, yeah. it, no, it is because the kids go into their dreams, and one's a wizard, and one has super yeah. strength, and they they all it's kind know, of a, change outfits. It's, it's a backloaded superhero mm-hmm. movie. So people are just like, yeah, they don't do that till the end. They still do it. It's a superhero movie. But anyway. It has superhero elements. But it's, a, it's an origin story. But it kicks in in the third act. It's also this freaky-ass horror movie where a TV comes alive and murders mm-hmm. a woman by pushing a face into itself. And, and Freddy becomes a, a giant, giant snake. Oh, oh that seems so creepy. And it's all practical effects, so everything's really slimy. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, the scene where he like rips out a guy's uh, tendons, like, tendons yeah, and, really and gross. carries him like a marionette. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. 
Yeah. So yeah. it's like, why are we describing this as badass? I, I, because it I was saw comparatively this, badass. I suppose so. But if I had seen that when I was 10, I would not sleep for a week. Yeah. Anyway, uh, do you two also miss this? And uh, do you think that a lot of movies are just lost in the nebulous of streaming service back catalogs because they often don't have a catching cover or screen grab to attract viewers? I hope you choose this question. I look forward to churning through your back catalog po- podcasts on Patreon. Stay fresh, goobers. Love Dane Cheesley. Um yeah, I do miss video stores. I you know, I miss video stores and I don't. And the, the, here's what I here's what I have come to learn about video stores is that uh, for, there are a lot of us who have these halcyon memories of video stores and going to video stores, hanging out at video stores, and discovering movies at video stores. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who don't because they came from like smaller communities where the video stores were kind of understocked mm-hmm. if they had one. Yeah. Um, and as a result, there were a lot of movies that were denied to them because they didn't live in like Los Angeles where we had a lot of options and we had yeah. independent video it, it stores. Is, it is definitely like a, a large urban experience. It's definitely a, more of an urban experience to get a good one. However, I do know people who had good video stores in smaller towns. Um, so it's not as universal as some of us like to think it is, but it's to those of us, to us, we're it, just talking about ourselves. No, I know. I just want to make it clear when we're mm-hmm. talking about this, because I think some people feel a little excluded from it because they didn't get this. Uh-huh. But if you had a really good video store with a really good selection and people who worked at that video store who cared about cinema and watched stuff that wasn't just the new releases and could actually guide you on your path... Uh, to learn more about movies and find more niche, cult, historical, classic stuff. Mm-hmm. That was really, really great. It felt like you had a small little safe haven or community where anyone who's in the store right now is interested in the same stuff you are. It's kind of like going to a comic book convention, but it's always right there. Yeah. You know, yeah. anytime you go to a con, it's one of the things I love about Comic Con is that, yeah, look, it got like kind of ultra commercial and like. Stuffed so much that you could barely walk around, and yeah, it hurt some of the smaller vendors when the big studios started taking up more space. But every time I went, even in the years where I didn't have as good a time, I knew I was surrounded by people who love the kind of art that I love, and everyone's there because they're there yeah, for that reason. Yeah. And having a video store just to go to and hang out in and talk to people about the stuff on the shelves and and physically interact with stuff. Like, you know, when you're sifting through movies on Netflix or whatever service you're using, Tubi, Amazon, whatever, that's fun and all, but there's something interesting about, like, picking up a video or a DVD or a Laserdisc, if that's what you had, with your hands, looking at the cover, holding it up and looking across Mm. the room and saying, hey, have you seen this? It's a little thing, but it really is a slightly different experience, and it makes it feel more personal. It's it's a little more substantial. It's more real. Yeah. Yeah. Another sense is involved. You're touching it. Yeah. Uh, and you put it into a machine. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of really great films that are still regarded highly that deal with the actual like ins and outs of physical media mm. and watching films on video Yeah. that uh, I don't think... I'm not sure if they're being sort of understood in the same way as somebody who had a video store experience. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, of something like David Cronenberg's Videodrome. Yeah. That's very much about what is, I guess that's about TV signals, but it's also about Betamax tapes. And the, the main mm. character, Max Wren, Max Betamax, gets Betamax tapes put in his chest when he grows <laughs> this like weird sort of Cronenbergian aperture in his abdomen. Uh, there's... Uh, the thought of a cursed videotape in The Ring and how that has spun off into a lot of these different kinds of thrillers that deal with 
uh, piece of technology that for younger audiences are seen as impossibly arcane, but to, you know, an old guy my age, because I'm 108, <laughs> I sort of dealt with intimately on a regular basis. So the idea of a cursed videotape Mm-hmm. connects to me because we ran into those types of videotapes. Did you ever see a Spanish film from Alejandro, from Alejandro Amenabar, who mm. is probably best known for doing uh, The Others or The Sea Inside, or uh, he did Open Your Eyes, the film that Vanilla Sky was based on. Mm. Um, he did a film, his first film was called uh, Tasis, or sometimes released under the name Snuff. I didn't see Snuff. Okay, it's really good. However, uh, the mystery might be a little predictable nowadays because I think a lot of other movies covered similar ground or mm. maybe did the mystery element a little bit better. But basically, it is about a bunch of a bunch of film students in Spain, and um, they start getting into like really twisted grindhouse cult violent stuff, mm. and one of them finds what she thinks is an actual snuff film. And she goes to the tech guy, like the guy who really knows more about the technology of cinema, and he starts like trying to suss out what type of videotape this is, mm-hmm. like what type of camera could be used. It has this kind of mat around it, so they probably have... so if you like are really interested in like the old school aesthetics of VHS, mm-hmm. that's an interesting horror movie. It's kind of like Blow Up, but uh, or Blow Out really, which mm-hmm. is also basically Blow Up, but like it's kind of like that, but with I, VHS. All right, um, it's a little underappreciated. I think it doesn't get enough to- uh, uh, talk, and uh, it's worth uh, it's worth checking out. It's, oh, yeah. a, it's a creepy little movie, and it's very, very much about the aesthetics of, of uh, home video, which oh, yeah. I think are largely overlooked. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the video store experience does, is, however, just an old, old man remembering the old times kind of conversation, because it, A, it's not coming back. B, mm. even if you go to one of the few remaining video stores, people aren't going to sort of see it as the important experience it was throughout the 1990s mm. when we were growing up and renting a lot from video stores. There's some people our age and older there's, who are still kind of clinging to it that way. Like, yeah. there's a store here in uh, Los Angeles that I really hope survives, given everything that's going on right now, called Cinephile. Uh, which has a the better people. video selection than any streaming service you've got access to. Yeah, yeah. They just they really really care about having like a thorough very, catalog, very carefully curated by people who are they know their w- shit. way as fuck hipper than you are. Yeah, um, they know their stuff. In fact, in fact, I actually applied. I couldn't get in to Cinephile. I wouldn't get hired at Cinephile because I couldn't pass their test. <laughs> they had a like test film, film trivia sort yeah of there's yeah. a there's like a film test like if someone comes in asking for this kind of movie what do you recommend um and they like just all these things that you're expected to know off the top of your head you're not expected to look them up yeah. because they take it that damn seriously and, and i really, could, might be able to pass it now but i couldn't in my 20s they were and they're really playful about the way they categorize you know they have oh, the yeah. usual stuff it's not like drama what does yeah. that mean every film's a drama yeah uh, comedy that makes a little more sense yeah. comedy is a little bit more but then they also have a their vintage section uh-huh. that's usually like vintage Hollywood that is like yeah. films from the 40s they have an enormous wall that is curated off by director and any film any filmmaker that has I think their role was six like you have six movies six, or no maybe it was only four like four or more films they, they could warrant their own section uh, but even and then, if they were notable auteurs in some way even then sometimes they can be a little snobby yeah. about it like I was once trying to find an M. Night Shyamalan film and I assumed yeah. he'd have his own director's section and they're like no no we don't, <laughs> we don't care about him but at, the, but at the same time they're the, the pioneers of the holy fucking shit section which yeah. is not just bad movies 
really off the wall movies. Like movies you can't believe were actually yeah. made. Some of them you've heard of, some of them you have like not. They, they were way ahead of the curve on Troll 2. Um, they had a Cuba Libre they, section, which is all, all the Cuba Gooding Jr. movies. Uh, <laughs> they had one called Poochie Pals, uh, Burly Babysitters, yep. Robbie Benson is Burly Robbie Babysit- Benson in Bur- Robbie Benson. Burly Babysitters is like any time where like Hulk Hogan or Dave Batista has to yeah. take care of a child. It's all, yeah, all about yeah. like really burly dudes having I, to, to act as babysitters. There are a lot of those types of types of movies. My favorite section that they have though is called Shade Tippin. And you know what we're talking about. You've seen a cover of a movie where someone's like got their back. It's like I think Blank Check does this. Like they got their back against the wall and they have and sunglasses. Kind of looking over their shoulder and pulling their shades down looking over Just the top. enough so they can look at yeah. you going eh? So any movie with a cover where people are shade tipping uh-huh. goes in the shade tipping section. Yeah, doesn't matter the, uh, what genre it is. The film Risky Business has that on their poster. Oh, yeah. It's a close up of Tom Cruise's eyes and he's looking over some shades. And, uh-huh. it's, and, and we don't even see his whole face, but we do see the shades. Yeah. And Tom Cruise came into Cinephile once and they asked him to s- sign Risky Business and they took it out of the shade tipping section. He felt that was so funny that he said, keep, keep shade tipping forever, Cinephile. <laughs> Tom Cruise. <laughs> That's awesome. That is wonderful. Anyway, uh, so yeah, the, video stores were like a little microcosm of community for people who love cinema in their heyday, and mm-hmm. I think they still could be. And it sure is nice to have any kind of space like that that we can get. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, they just don't physically exist for the most part anymore. In many cases, streaming services are better than what people had access to back when they had a video store because the video stores weren't great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, on some respects, that's a positive. But I think that's one of the reasons why people still gravitate towards podcasts and YouTube channels and people just shooting the shit about movies because mm. we kind of miss having that community yeah, uh, either yeah, because we had it and lost it or because we never had it and it, it, it's appealing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. So this podcast right here is kind of a video store. This is, uh, in fact, you, lo- looking at, if you look in our apartments, <laughs> we do have, we live in video stores. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think, I think you and I have about the same amount, actually. Yeah, I, might, uh, I might have slightly more because I combined more. it with Michelle, and she's That's a bit true. of a cinephile and as well. You also hang on to weird stuff that I would sell. So, yeah. like, uh, like, do you need the Shopkins movie? Uh, no, but I never know when it's going to come in useful. It's true, and if you're not going to want to be in a position where you're assigned yeah. something, like to write something about a Shopkins yeah. movie, and you have no access. Like to I it. have the movie Downsizing on Blu-ray. Why do I have it on Blu-ray? Because I don't ever want to pay to have it on Blu-ray. <laughs> Downsizing so, is not a good. Film. Like I don't want to get rid of it and then need to buy it again, yeah. and then all of a sudden the studio thinks, "Oh, people like Downsizing again. We should remake it." No. <laughs> That's not what I want. First of all, what universe is that? I don't know. <laughs> Let's move on. Here's a letter from GB. Hi, GB. Hi. Uh, it starts with, hello, you beautiful boys. Oh, well, hello. Hello. Uh, I'm a new listener, but I'm slowly plumbing the brilliant archive that is the Critically Acclaimed Network, oh, and I uh, couldn't be fonder of you both. Oh, pshaw. That's very flattering. Um, thank you. Your individual views and consistently sensitive criticism you both share is refreshing, and I particularly enjoy it when you both disagree, since, <laughs> as a complete compliment, there's a sense that uh, this causes you to both even more passionately present your views and the already thought takes you provide in every podcast um, yeah people like it when critics argue that was uh, one of the things we always look forward to in Siskel and Eber it's like when are they gonna punch each other <laughs> are you nuts that movie stunk more than a creepy one bedroom apartment your mother didn't think it was so creepy <laughs> this from the guy who liked Benji the Hunted hey, you liked Carnosaur <laughs> we could go on. Yeah. Um, the, the absolute non sequitur into Whitney's stuffing being nothing but all hair all the way down had me in stitches for most of the recent We've Got Mail episode, though I can't entirely explain why. 
I can't either. I don't even remember why we yeah. said that. It came from weird depths of the sickest part <laughs> of my imagination. Uh, this made me think of examples in media when weirdly personal reactions I've had to specific beats or images, such as the sex question mark scene in Madagascar's skin, the haunting of Park's Da Song and Parasite, a simple effect as mm-hmm. the image of Park Myung Hoong as a ghost for uh, just a moment, or the meet cute at the end at the dance in West Side Story. Mm. Are there any examples you would care to share from the media of times you felt completely overtaken by joy or rage? or sadness, or sexual interest, etc., even just for a single image or vignette. Oh, uh, sincerely yours in Weird Vibes, GB. That's hard, man. Mm. That's actually really hard. Well, I mean, that's that's why we go to the movies, yeah. is, is to search for these we little just, moments. And we collect uh, them, and then they become a part of us, yeah, and then they stop seeming quite as unique, because they're part of our personality, mm. and I can't necessarily bring them to mind. I'll tell you what I just saw. Hmm. Um, we do a podcast on our Patreon called Only the Best, where we're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, we're in the middle of 1938, and there was this big chunk in the 30s and early 40s where there were 10 nominees, mm-hmm. so it's taking us a little longer to get through that era. Uh, but I just saw... Uh, I, I don't mind. I love the oh, I don't mind either. films of the 30s. Yeah. I don't mind. I mean, there's some there's some really bad movies in there, but mostly it's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw Jezebel uh, with Betty Davis, and I've never seen okay. it before. There's a scene at the beginning of Jezebel where Betty Davis... She's late to her own party. Oh, what a scandal. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't give no fucks about what anyone's talking about. So she gets off of her horse. And then, because she's wearing this long skirt that's just going to drag, she whips up her skirt with her her riding crop in one deft move. (laughs) And then just carries it along behind her like a motherfucking badass. And it's such a great shot. And then when I was doing a little research on the film, took 45 takes to get that right. They knew <laughs> how cool that would look if, it, yeah, if they uh, did it right. And they uh, took the time. And it's a really just a moment where I was just like, fuck, yeah, that's how you do that. I don't even know. Yeah. Never had a riding crop in my hand in my life, and I'd do that. I wonder how many takes it took Frank Langella to get that, like, Dracula cape whip in oh, his yeah. version of Dracula. Oh, First yeah. of all, that's the, the most underseen and underappreciated Dracula film. I like, agree. Like, a, a Dracula production that there yeah. ever was. It's, it's sexy, it's But there's, it's there's a bit where, so where he good. first enters, and I think he sees, yeah. is it, I'm not sure if it's Mina or Lucy, I think it's Mina. He steps into this ballroom, and Mina's there in her gown, looking like a million bucks, and Dracula steps in looking like a trillion bucks. And <laughs> he's got his, this big 70s hair. And, and Frank Langella, without l- losing eye contact with Mina, yeah. begins striding very gracefully, very assertively across the room. He takes off his cape and this one movement whips it aside. It spins wholly through the air, oh, it's so landing cool. in the hands of a valet who's standing nearby and he just keeps on walking. It is the sexiest mm. damn thing. Uh, uh, do you remember that brief but, era in the 90s where characters, badass characters in movies did full court lobs on basketball courts and they would try to do it all in one shot? Oh well, there was uh, that was an Escape from L.A. Escape from L.A. and Alien uh, Resurrection. Uh, Alien Resurrection as they, well. And yeah. allegedly, they kept doing those shots until both Sigourney Weaver and Kurt Russell actually did it. Hmm. In the case of Sigourney Weaver, it's extra impressive because she was she did it backwards. She wasn't looking at the hoop. And uh, in fact, <laughs> funny story about that. Uh, she did it on the first take. She actually did oh! do it over and over again. They said oh. she like practiced a few times with like a, they got, got a basketball coach yeah. and sort of teach her how to do it. So like oh, keep oh, going straight, throw it this way. It's gonna go right their way. This is the way you're gonna be facing on. That's so you throw it, and uh, and they said okay, do it. And she turns away from the the hoop and she's like got like alien DNA. So she's like part monster badass. Yeah, in that she's movie. all cool and, in that movie. Yeah. And so she's striding away. And she throws it over her head and it goes into the basket. And we, we, you look at Ron Perlman's face in that scene. He's like holy. 
fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Probably and, not acting. And and they said, cut, cut, cut. That, that was great. You did it. And she was like elated that she did it on the first try. It's like, and um, but we can't use that in the movie because it left frame. The ball went up out of frame and then came down and in the basket. Are gonna and people are going to think we faked it. Yeah. And Sigourney Weaver said, and I know she said this because she said it on a talk show. She says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go on all the talk shows. I'm going to tell them the truth about that. <laughs> and that's how I know it because I saw her on a talk show telling the truth that she actually got it in one take. And you know what? I believe her. I believe her I don't too. think she's blowing anything up. Uh, with the case of Kurt Russell in Escape from L.A., yeah, they had to do like 150 takes. Oh, yeah. yeah it took just took a, a long, long time. time. Yeah. They just did it until he did it. Yeah. It's like, His arm's just... probably dead at the yeah. end of the <laughs> day. God. Just flailing around. Can you do no more? No. No. <laughs> Can you do 80 more? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to think of other little moments. Jeez. Yeah. Um, little moments that informed my... Yeah, the, and, uh. and again, uh, this has been said about like great literature for centuries and centuries. About how... The moment comes when you're reading mm. or seeing a painting or absorbing any piece of art yeah. when completely unpredictably you realize you're, you're shaking hands with the author mm. where there's this moment of profound communal understanding mm. where they have observed a piece of the world or just given a little turn of the phrase or a uh, tiny use of description or described a certain type of character in a way that is wholly real to you. Mm. And I guess that's what people talk about when they talk about being seen, although I think that phrase is a little cheap. Uh, oh, I think it might be a little overused. It's, it's overused. To the extent all, that it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean what it's it like, oh, I felt, should mean. But. It's like, oh, I'm lazy. There's another... There, I, I read a Garfield strip and felt seen. It's like, mm, mm, it should be about not feeling uh, seen beforehand and now you yeah, yeah, and... Uh, and yeah, I think when uh, when you're watching a, a piece of cinema, good or bad, not necessarily a great piece of art, but something that seems to understand the way you have come to think yeah. about the world. I think it's one of the reasons why things like food movies are mm. so special, because, you know, everyone eats. You know, you have to if you want to yeah, survive. Maybe so, you like, weirdos. But, but my point is, uh, you know, so when there's something that's appetizing, we can all go... I'm there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's the ticket. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. Eat that spaghetti. That's <laughs> good. Mm, thank you, Big Night. Like that kind of thing. But, God, I don't know. I, I feel weird at how much I'm blanking on this. Mm. Because there's there's little moments in practically any movie that I love. Mm. Like, um, I love every time in the movie Step Up 3D, someone steals a hat. People just steal hats <laughs> just all the time. If you're dancing, you're allowed mm. to steal someone's hat forever. You don't even have mm. to give it back. That's their that's their like their mm. penance the, for not dancing as good as you. Something I've always loved in movies, and I wish I could always be this cavalier. Is when you're done with something, you throw it away. Yeah, just fling it over your shoulder. There's like. Uh, there's that funny scene in, in uh, Kenneth Branagh's Thor. Oh, yeah. Where, oh, where, yeah! When he's drinking in the yeah, diner. It's like, like, they're, they're in just this little drinky-dink diner that looks like a set. It's a cheap-ass-looking movie. And, and Thor is <laughs> sitting there on a chair. He's like, what is this drink? Oh, that's coffee. He takes a big sip. Oh, yes, this is good coffee. And he just chucks the mug at the ground like he's a Viking in a Viking hall. It's like the one moment of Viking coolness in this. And he sells, another! Movie. Another coffee! 
<laughs> I'd love to be the guy who just like takes a sip of like a cu- slug from a coffee mug and just flings it over my shoulder and don't have to think about where it lands. One of my favorite things in um, uh, there's a movie that people don't talk about enough. A lot of people talk about the movie Cannonball Run. It's a lot of fun. It's about a cross country uh, car chase and every car is packed full of someone famous, Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise. Mm. I think Sammy Davis Jr. is in that one. Jackie Chan is in one of those. Is, and, uh, is it great or is it one of the worst ever movies ever made? The answer is yes. Yeah, uh, but there's a movie that pre- precedes that that's unrelated, but it's the exact same premise. It's called The Gumball Rally, mm. and it's really fun, and I actually prefer it to Cannonball Run. And the reason why, largely, is because of Raul Julia. Mm. Raul Julia, one of the great actors of all time, you almost certainly know him as Gomez Adams from the live-action Adams Family movies, but he did a lot of great films. Mm. Um, he plays an Italian race car driver who is hired as a ringer because someone wants to win this race, and he doesn't think he can do it by driving himself. So he hires an Italian race car driver, a famous Italian race car driver, to do the driving for him, thinking, I'm going to win. Mm-hmm. And only when the race begins does he realize what a horrible mistake he's made, because just before like the bell goes off, mm-hmm. Raul Julia... Just gra- start the race, yeah. Yeah, he, he, Raul, Raul Julia grabs the rearview mirror, yanks it off the hinge, <laughs> and says, first rule of Italian driving, what's behind you? doesn't matter and he throws it away (laughs) and the guy's like terrified like i have made a huge mistake it's really damn funny love all of that um god yeah i listen there's so many things uh i I feel like i maybe i should have prepared for this one but um yeah we live for these moments we live for these moments when we see something cool we've never seen before we've seen someone do something that we have done or always wanted to do Mm. um these this is how we make our connections it's not these huge giant sweeping moments those huge giant sweeping moments you love in movies like you know avengers uh endgame or star wars or uh, lawrence of arabia the reason those films have a huge sweeping impact on you is because of all the little moments ahead of time that made you feel connected so Mm. we should move on um here's a letter from andrew hi andrew hello andrew uh hello kind souls Thank you for saying that. Um, I hope you're keeping well. I was looking at the current revival of the Universal Monsters series. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, the Dark Universe. I, re- I can't, well. <laughs> can't wait to see that really ramp up. Um, which led me to reflect on all the adaptations that have come in the past, and I noticed that with uh, with all the adaptations of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, none have been directed by women. Uh, it, if you know of any, however, please let me know, uh, which left me a little perplexed. This is one of the most iconic texts written by a woman, so I couldn't help but wonder why there hadn't been any film ad- adaptations directed by a woman yet. For me, I would love to see an adaptation by the director Julia Dur- uh, Ducournau, who did Raw. Yeah, that'd be uh, cool. Who would you think would suit Frankenstein the best? Also, does it matter who adapts books or stories? Uh, I acknowledge the argument that gender shouldn't come into a discussion in film. <laughs> We've all just talked about that. Yeah, but, I think it should, uh, actually, sometimes, yeah. But when so many books written by women are being adapted by men, I can't help but wonder what kind of subtext might be missed in said adaptation. Uh, can you think of any texts that were written by women that need a new adaptation by a female director? Prozac Nation immediately jumps to mind. I mm. uh, hope you're staying safe in the midst of all this isolation, uh, Andrew. Um, um, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, to start with, uh, and I can't think of... Uh, a Frankenstein movie directed by a woman offhand. I, for a second, I misremembered because when The Invisible Man was really, really successful and with good cause, that's a great movie. Uh, the new one. The original is great too. Uh, but uh, there was an immediate move 
to do another Universal Monster movie in that vein. Mm -hmm. That uh, we're going to strip away all that blockbuster artifice and try to get at what's really creepy about it. Uh, And uh, Karen Kusama, who directed uh, Jennifer's Body, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Girl Fight, I think she did that one with uh, Michelle Rodriguez. That was her, right? Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, And a few other horror things as well. she oh she did the invitation which is really one of the best scary movies of the last decade. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, she was tapped to direct Dracula. For a minute, I thought I remember her being tapped to direct Frankenstein. I was wrong about that, so I got oh, really yeah. excited. I was able to say, "No, we're getting one. We're not." Um, it's possible hmm. that I'm forgetting one, or that there's one that's you know sort of off-brand. Frankenstein is one of those stories hmm. that has become so indelible and iconic that there are a lot of riffs on it that are very yeah. clearly like owe a lot to Frankenstein, but nobody calls them Frankenstein. Like, RoboCop is a Frankenstein story. Yeah. Like, literally, just beat the beats are there. But, uh, but that also was directed by a man. Also directed by My point is this. There might be a Frankenstein-ish mm-hmm. story that I'm not thinking of. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would love, I would, you know, Frankenstein is a story uh, that was, you know, it's the most famous and, you know, influential horror novel ever. Um, it spawned the sci-fi genre as we know it. It spawned the horror genre in some respects as we know it. It's uh, And it is definitely, uh, from a woman's perspective, there's a lot of women's issues that are explored in that film that a lot of male directors don't really focus on because they look at, oh, the tragedy of Dr. Frankenstein. Mm. He's the villain. <laughs> You're missing this. He's yeah, a shitty and, absentee and, dad who doesn't care about people, and those a, people come back and hurt him because he deserves it. He, he's blinded by his own ego, and this yeah. is why I think Kenneth Branagh's rendition of Frankenstein is actually really savvy without realizing it, because mm. Kenneth Branagh, like, his his ego could crack a moon. <laughs> I think he's very talented. I think, you know, a lot of his ego is warranted, but yeah, he thinks very highly of himself as a, as a director and as a theater guy. Mm-hmm. And when he makes a Frankenstein film, of course, it's all about how great and clear-thinking Frankenstein is. And he's, like, working out and filming himself all greasy and shirtless in a lot of scenes. And he's really kind of luxuriating over his own physique in that movie that it kind of colors the mess of what we think about Frankenstein, not as the sexy guy, but as this egotist. Yeah, they're... There, for the life of me, I cannot think of a Frankenstein film that was directed by a woman, and that's absurd. Yeah, that's one hundred percent absurd. Is, yeah. And please, if you know of any, yeah. whether it's especially if it's a direct adaptation, but even if it's you know sort of a periphery adaptation mm. where it's basically Frankenstein, I would love that. I would love to hear that. I would love mm. to make sure that because I, I feel like I'm forgetting something, but. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I even just Googled Frankenstein movies directed by women. I found nothing. <laughs> like, nothing yeah. came up. It's absurd. But who who could direct a really good Frankenstein oh, movie? Oh, jeez. Uh, well, actually, Julia DeCourneau is a really good idea. I yeah. think she understands uh, that yeah. level. Of, with with uh, um, Raw is a film that's very much about uh, obsession and mm. um, impulse and the very human... Uh, failings that lead us to do horrible and disgusting things. It's, I would think she could yeah. maybe do something really, really interesting. Also, it's like bloody that. and fleshy, so yeah. that's good, too. I, I would say the same thing about Marina Devan's In My Skin. Marina Devan would be good, although that was... Mm-hmm. I actually haven't seen that one. Uh, it, it, let me rave about In My Skin again. Like I do, I do this like <laughs> twice a year. Uh, Marina Devan's In My Skin from like 2002 is uh, one of the best horror movies of its decade. Uh, it's 
about a woman who go played by Marina Devan who goes into a, a backyard at a party. She's really disconnected from everybody. She's really kind of silent and aloof, and she trips in the backyard by herself and cuts her leg open. And she doesn't really tell anybody. She just lets herself bleed when she goes back into the party. And she goes home and just sort of looks at the cut and then starts cutting herself, like, on the regular. And this isn't necessarily about the phenomenon of cutting, which, you know, a a lot of people kind of go through that when they're in really kind of a depressive mind state. It's partly about that, but it's also about this weird kind of meditation on the fact that we're just body parts. And she becomes really fascinated and becomes almost addicted to this notion of, like, lopping off bits of herself. It's really, really disturbing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really, really great, too. Um, so, yeah, I think Marina Devan would make a really good Frankenstein movie. Mm. Uh, who, who's got really kind of like a good gallows sort of sensibility? Or I mean, something I, really kind of. I feel like I feel like the Shoshka sisters would do something interesting, mm. um, but I also think that they're a little bit more playful mm. uh, than maybe Frankenstein. Warren's then again a playful version of Frankenstein. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely a thought. I, that I comes was going to mention. Um, oh, um, Birds of Prey. Kathy Yan. Oh, yeah. that'd be Kathy, cool. Kathy Yan could, She's could probably so make damn some, good. some really kind of colorful. I, I, wasn't a, I wasn't even a big fan of Birds of Prey, but mm-hmm. uh, I think she could do a good, uh, like, f- you know who? Col- energetic kind of winky Frankenstein. You know who could be a really, really cool Frankenstein? Someone who has worked mm. in sort of that classical, like, period piece Hollywood uh, uh, mode, mm. but someone who definitely tells stories from a female perspective and who definitely isn't afraid to look at the dark edges of humanity is Jane Campion. <laughs> if you <laughs> tell me Jane, that, that, okay. Jane Campion's I'm, I'm in Frankenstein, line. I'm in line for Jane Campion's Frankenstein, and it's a period piece, <laughs> and they spent some money. It doesn't have to be a hundred million dollars, but they spent some money on it. Mm. I'm there. I'll be in line you know, the day before it comes what out. What should have happened is Jane Campion should have made that film in '94 and opened it opposite Brown as Frankenstein. Oh, <laughs> that would be the coolest. Be like two warring Frankenstein movies. That would and they be were both, so cool. Both would have been good in their own way. Jennifer Kent would do a good one too. Yeah, she's an excellent, yeah. uh, you know, horrifying filmmaker. Even though she doesn't exclusively make horror movies. Um, I'm trying to think of other like texts by women that yeah. haven't had a good. Uh, like, uh, adaptations. Jane, Jane, plenty of women have adapted Jane Austen, for instance. Uh, not um, even then, not as many as you'd think. As you'd think, you yeah. know, like, like Sense and Sensibility was written by Emma Thompson, but it was directed by Ang Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most and recent, very well, but uh, still, the most recent know. Emma was was really terrific. Um, mm-hmm. Who who did the the nineties Emma, the one with Gwyneth Paltrow? Oh, I don't recall. Uh, I forgot the, the director. Of Hold that on, one. but uh, but Clueless was directed. Yeah, by one Amy Heckling. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, Emma was directed by Douglas McGrath. Oh, that's right. Good old Doug. That's something I would have failed on a schmodown. They're on, never going to ask who directed that. There's. Uh, it's it's good to have it in my brain. Oh now. sure, but no, it was mm-hmm. not. Uh, do you remember who uh, who? Um, oh, I forget the name of the love interest in Emma, the one she actually ends up with. Do you remember who? Oh, played Cliff. I forgot his name. <laughs> oh, yeah. the, they're all Rochester to me. <laughs> I know. Uh, it's uh, uh, Jeremy Northam. Jeremy Jer- Northam. Oh, There's that yeah. brief period where thought, everyone thought Jeremy Northam would be the next big thing, and he was not. Mm. Um, um, so uh, what else? What are some of the big ones? Uh we, I mean, there's only been one film adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, and it's kind of gangbusters, so I'm not sure if we need multiple adaptations of it, but it's a book written by a woman, and mm. it was, hasn't been directed by a woman yet, as far as I know. So. No, and, and, the, and the movie is so it's, it's much about, about a, Atticus that it really doesn't 
Action Focus is okay on Scout, but mm. it definitely could be interesting to see that uh, yeah. have more of a perspective. Um, the Joy Luck Club comes to mind. I think Wayne Wang's version is actually quite good. Uh, but well, it's, um, it's also a more recent book, so it's not mm. not you know ancient it, piece of literature. Sure. Um, another one that this is one we had to read in junior high school. It was The Outsiders by S. E. Hinton. Mm. Uh, that is seen as sort of an aggressively masculine story. I think thanks to the movie, it's all about you know young boys. And uh, I would love to see a woman direct something like The Outsiders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, though there was actually a TV series as well, don't forget. Who, who did The Handmaid's Tale movie? Oh, it wasn't, I, should, it oh I used uh, to know that. Hold on. It, it wasn't Greenaway, but... um, I, I thought it was, actually. Was it Peter Greenaway? Yeah, maybe. Hang on. Handmaid's Tale movie. Um, and, uh, that was Volkler Schlondorf. Schlondorf did yeah. The Handmaid's Tale movie. The one from the 80s. Uh, uh, 1990. Ninety. I, I, I haven't. I haven't seen any of the new TV series. Um, mm. I saw a play adaptation written by my theater professor oh. when I was in college. Oh, that was uh, no pressure to find it good, huh? Pardon? Was it any good? It was. It wasn't good, but it was really affecting. Like it. Oh. It, it really. It communicated okay. a lot really well, but it was also like grossly prurient in like a yeah. way that was kind of unsavory. But I think that was kind of the point. All right. Um, Anyway, I'm sure there's a ton of other examples, and we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet us, um, let us know. Um, but uh, yeah, we we don't tend to read these emails ahead of time, so as long as we're a bit on the spot, it's a bit of a test. Yeah, so yeah, we're kind of, kind uh, so of just digging through. A we came bit. up with what we got, but uh, yeah, let's move on. Okay. Let's see if we can go with anything else. Um, here's a letter from uh, Ryan. This is very brief, but okay. uh, I asked in a recent letters column, like where, or just in a recent episode, uh, if there's any kind of really bitter satire about the way young people live hmm. today, like today. The, the Instagram generation. And uh, Ryan wrote in and said, the wicked perspective satire of image-obsessed Instagram culture that you're looking for exists, and it's called Ingrid Goes West. Oh, uh, I've heard about that, yeah. Uh, yeah I which, that uh, which has um, uh, Aubrey Plaza in it. Yeah. Um, I, I have it, I have the video of it, but I haven't watched it yet. Okay, we'll get to it. Yeah, uh, Neon uh, uh, gives us some really good screeners at the end of every year. Yeah. Um, for consideration. For consideration. For yeah. Here's a letter from Mint. Hello, Mint. Hi, Mint. Um, hi, gentlemen. I'm uh, I'm not sure if the letters about letters episodes crosses the line of some self-referentiality. <laughs> we do it's a lot. It's all actually, good. Yeah. Uh, but after listening to your discussion about Zero Dark Thirty and the report on a recent episode, I felt like someone needed to pull the brakes on praise for the report. While I fall closer to Bibb's interpretation of Zero Dark Thirty, I actually think the film is pretty literal about being against the war on terror. I can understand why people find it morally noxious and don't think of the film think it's worth fighting over. I'm more concerned by overly praising the report, which falls squarely in the A Few Bad Apples interpretation of The War on Terror. The film spends so much time highlighting the evil of torture that it never stops to think that The War on Terror was itself evil. While Zero Dark Thirty is open to progressive interpretation through its ending, a Christian uh, Chastain's character, having achieved her goals, uh, cries, realizing that she's wasted a decade of her life on something that makes absolutely no difference, uh, an interpretation that Chastain herself has claimed in interviews. Yeah. The report stands firm that the American response to 9-11 was on the level of, if we just find a few bad apples that did that torture thing. In short, I think that when we're looking at the media that emerged in the wake of 9-11 and the war on terror, we shouldn't make torture our litmus test, or we open ourselves to a way of thinking that leaves out the myriad other evils that have contributed to the hellscape we currently find ourselves in. Anyway, uh, those are my thoughts. I wanted to echo... 
I want to echo other letter writers and thanking you for continuing to put out these great podcasts. I was an obsessive listener to the B-Movies podcast back in the day, oh. but fell off after it ended. And some uh, and came, coming back to you guys during my self-isolation has been a joy in a dark time. Thanks. Well, thank you Mims. so much. Uh, and thank also, you. P.S., for films that take on new meaning in recent times, my go-to is Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you're not picturing it, if you haven't seen Jaws in a while, uh, Jaws is a movie about a very real threat to, to everyone's lives. And because uh, actually taking that seriously and taking the precautions necessary to ra- to save lives mm-hmm. uh, could potentially uh, harm a small island's economy, they decide to just take a chance. Just to reopen the economy, the beaches. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then uh, the, the shark attacks and then their economy is even more destroyed than ever. Uh, which is actually going to be a big plot of the sequel, and they decided that was too depressing, so they shifted that around. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty damn on the nose. And uh, it's it's an evil we've been dealing with this whole time. Mm. Uh, Same basic plot as Alien. Oh, yeah, well, we should uh, all be under quarantine and not let this thing out. Yeah, but the company really wants to make a profit off of this. (laughs) And then we all die. This is all response to, like, Reagan shit, by the way. Well, Jaws predates that. Well, yeah, Jaws does. uh, Capitalism's been an issue all along. But even though Reagan wasn't president until after the production of Alien, you you can see a lot of Reagan. A lot Mm -hmm. of this this criticism of the the growing uh, horde of yuppies that was going on throughout Mm -hmm. the 1980s. The people who value the economy and making yeah. money over like, human life. Yeah, con- yeah. Consu- like conspicuous consumption. Like, if you think it's bad now, conspicuous consumption in the 1980s was oh, wild. ridiculous. Yeah, no, be watching well, it some money back then. Watch you know. the movie Wall Street at some point. You'll understand a lot about what's going on right now. Hmm. Um, but uh, what was the, oh the question? Oh, it was about uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, yeah. I think it's actually something that we should try to remember. Um, that uh, just because a movie says it's about one thing doesn't mean that's the only way you can interpret that. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look at something like, and I didn't see the report, but if you want to mm-hmm. look at like, oh, the report is saying this about the war on terror, you're allowed to bring your own perspective to that. Yeah. And you don't, have to, you don't have to make the movie exactly and exclusively on the movie's own terms. I really like the point that Zero Dark Thirty, you know, all this is torture, whatever, but the war on terror in the first place... Mm-hmm. Was, was morally a problem, yeah. yeah, even before we started torturing people because it wasn't handled right, mm. because there were fundamental flaws and hypocrisies involved. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the way I see the report, though, is not uh, an attempt to fit the entire conflict into microcosm. And I can see that that would be a problem because, yeah, there was something really kind of problematic. And... Uh, saying that if like we just didn't have these few bad apples or these few bad decisions, then these things wouldn't have happened. But mm-hmm. now we're far away enough from uh, all of that. The wars are still going on, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but we're far enough uh, from like from nine eleven and from the Bush administration that we can start to have a little bit more perspective. We understand a lot more about the lies and deceit and all of the, the horrors that were going into this conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a lot of films made about it. There's the Valerie Plame movie. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, mm-hmm. films about the soldiers' experience, things like Green Zone and Jarhead. Well, Jarhead's about the first Gulf War. But um, yeah. uh, just about all the different facets of all, all these different conflicts that just sort of blew up in the, uh, in the early 2000s. That I think we're kind of sifting now at this point. Now in the year mm. 20, 2019 when that movie came out, 
to find other little details and other injustices that were previously hidden underneath the bigger questions that we had already been asking. Here's the thing, though. When you focus on a story about the people who actually were saying something about why this is wrong at the time, um, some of whom were, and uh, sometimes in movies like this they'll fictionalize that a little bit, um, it starts to become this sort of, and I, I think this is a danger we have when we tell stories about history, this whole idea of like, well, if I was there, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. No. And that's one of the things I actually respect about Zero Dark Thirty is that it doesn't, doesn't let Jessica Chastain... Yeah, Jessica Chastain isn't saying all this stuff is wrong. She's just part of this whole system, good and bad. Mm. It all is there, and it's all happening. And some of the worst things we could have possibly done happened... Also, there was an attempt to do some good, and I think the movie is morally dense. Mm. Maybe not on one side or another, but I do believe that it's a, it's not attempting to only tell one side of uh, uh, the the story, mm-hmm. and it's not pretending to just say, "Well, no, now that we have some hindsight, the right way to do it was this," and we mm. can just have a, someone give a big speech, yeah, and and say that mm. before you know, back when everyone was too blinded by. Everything going on, news stories, yeah. propaganda, post-traumatic stress, fear, anxiety, uh, public pressure. There's so many things that were going on. And a lot of people who probably think of themselves as decent human beings either did it or knew about it and didn't do something about it. Mm. That's something we have to wrangle with. Yeah, yeah. Um- I think the report is is an interesting movie, although it would make a really good double feature with Errol Morris's standard operating procedure, oh, which is a do- documentary. It's an interview film with uh, the people who are working at Guantanamo Bay, the American soldiers who were committing all these acts and photographing it. It was yeah, really horrible. Really, really horrible. Yeah, I remember when those photos and, came out. And yeah, and like all, all those photos guys. came out, and so Errol Morris wanted to figure out why he his his later era films have been going to uh, the people who per- he perceives as kind of the great committers of evil in mm. modern war and modern politics and just trying to figure it figure it out. He did a film with Donald Rumsfeld. His last film was yeah. with Steve frickin' Bannon, for God's sake. Weird. Uh, I, got, I got to review that on the radio, so there's actually a record of me calling Steve Bannon assist with teeth and hair. But, uh, <laughs> Jesus, dude. <laughs> That's such an image. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, he's, he is a dermoid cyst. One of those okay, things. We're that, done. Yeah, we're the, done. We're done. <laughs> I don't want to think about Steve Bannon yeah. or cysts. Thank but you. you're both equally disgusting. But uh, yeah, I think the praise for the report is a way to find uh, just yet another way to be outraged. I don't think it was trying to simplify, but mm. I understand that that's that could be a, a, yeah. a complaint, a good criticism of that. All right. Uh, well, um, I think that's it for this week okay. on We've Got Mail. We, got, we hit an hour and a half. I think we're doing pretty good. <laughs> All right. Um, Thank you, everybody, for writing in. If you would like to write in, the email address, once again, is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, if you have something maybe uh, shorter, quicker, quick reaction, whatever, be sure to tweet us at Critic Acclaim. Mm-hmm. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And if you want a ton more content from me and Whitney, be sure to check out patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, the critically acclaimed network Patreon is the reason why we can still stay on the air. Uh, and we sure do appreciate everybody uh, who 
helps us out. Mm. So uh, in return for that, we try to give you a ton of exclusive content. We have podcasts about uh, Star Trek. We have podcasts about Firefly. Uh, we have podcasts about the Oscars. We have commentary tracks. A ton of stuff. Whitney, am I forgetting anything? Uh, a ton of stuff pretty much covers it. <laughs> All right. So everybody, thank you very, very much. Uh, we'll read more of your letters next week. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. 